Our scripture reading today is taken from Psalm 95. Psalm 95. Let's hear the word of God. Reading, of course, from the authorized version. For those online, the words will come up on the screen. We encourage you to get your own Bible and follow along if you can. That would be so important. Not just hear them, but see them. Psalm 95, verse 1. Let's read these words together. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. And make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God. And a great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his. And he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved for this generation, and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now, my text this morning is taken from Psalm 95. Uh, verses 6 and 7, it reads as follows, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice. And I want to attempt to preach this morning on the subject that I've entitled, Understanding the Principles of True Biblical Worship. I'm sure you'll agree with me that the church of Jesus Christ is under attack today. In fact, the church of Jesus Christ is in a battle for its very survival. Now, this spiritual battle is on one or two fronts. It's under attack from without. The New World Order wants a one-world church that has come together energized by satanic power and a godless state. Think of a godless state telling us what to say, how to think, and what to do. And let me remind you that I believe that this one world order is already coming to the West. It's already here. It's manifesting itself in the East. And you only have to think of communist China. Think of being in a postmodern world. In a new age of moral relativism, 
where men and women, of course, do that which is right in their own eyes, according to that godless state. But the church is also under attack from within. Think of the rise of false teachers and false teaching. Think of the ecumenical movement and its design. Think of the charismatic confusion of our day. Think of the spread of the cults. Think of resurgent Romanism. Think of the ravings of the higher critics against God and his person, against the Bible, against Jesus Christ. These so-called religious experts who think they know best and tell us what we should believe and what we should do. Think of the introduction and the adoption of things into the life and witness of the professing church, like same-sex marriage, like abortion, a homosexual lifestyle. Many more godless, immoral practices could be mentioned. Now, these two forces, a force without and a force within, they are coming together. They are merging to squeeze the very life and existence out of the church of Jesus Christ, especially the evangelical, fundamental, reformed church. And it's vital today that you understand that the last days are here. And it's vital that you understand the times in which you live. These are days of apostasy. Are we alarmed? Days of great heresy. Days of spiritual anarchy. Days of immorality, days of uncertainty, days of calamity. Denominations and great churches that once stood as a bastion for the truth, they have fallen. Fallen like dominoes to this satanic inspired attack. Now, one specific area where the battle has been raging for these past 20 years is in the realm of public worship. Now listen to me carefully. Sadly, the worship of God in the Lord's day has become a hotbed of controversy and difficulty. Let me explain. Whole churches have been split on this very issue. How do we publicly worship God? Do you know that some churches, even in Northern Ireland, have two meetings? One traditional meeting that's for the, the old timers, and I say that respectfully. And then they have a, 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 a contemporary service. Well, that's for the young people. That's for the millennials, as they're called. And there's a different music. And there's a different methodology. And there's even a different message and a different style of ministry. And on the one hand, in the traditional, you've got a very reverential approach to worship. And on the other hand, you've got a very relaxed approach to worship. And you see, we have grown up today and we have failed to answer the question, what's wrong with drama in the church? What's wrong with drums in the church? What's wrong with dance in the church? After all, is it not saying the Bible, David danced before the Lord? What's wrong with the new contemporary uh, hymns and songs? What's wrong with the new versions of the Bible? Surely we must love everybody. Uh, uh, surely 
We must love the planet and protect the environment for climate change is coming to wipe us all out. See, today, young people are asking in relation to public worship on the Lord's Day, even in the traditional service, we need to liven things up a bit. Let me illustrate. You see, on the one hand, we have the contemporary church scene. Whole services, well, they're music-based. They're led by the praise band. If there's a reading at all, the reading is from good news for modern man, not the authorized version. Or worse, it's, it's the message from Eugene Patterson. The speaker, of course, is casually dressed, jeans and a T-shirt. There's no pulpit. There's maybe a lectern or, or a stand. The pews have gone. It's been replaced by chairs. And, and the, the, the preacher doesn't preach. He, he talks. And he has a discussion and a dialogue. And he, and he talks about ways to rear the children. Tips on how to have a successful marriage. Dealing with plastic in the ocean. How to make a pizza. How to bake a cake. How to score a goal for Jesus. Now you may think... That, that can't be happening in Northern Ireland. I want to tell you, if you look in the contemporary religious scene today in Northern Ireland, in the contemporary church, that's exactly what is happening. And there's not a message about repentance. There's no message about sin. There, there's no message on the doctrine of salvation. Salvation, according to the contemporary church, is not by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. And see, on the other hand, then, we've got the traditional approach to public worship. You think of our own Presbyterian style of worship. We offer praise, as we've done this morning. We've prayed. We've presented our gifts. We've publicly read from the Scriptures. And now there's preaching of the Word. You see, worship this morning is one of the most important subjects that we can consider. And yet the reality is that in the day in which we live, in the times in which we live, public worship has become a toxic thing. Public worship has become controversial. So we're going to ask this morning, and I have to be careful here because I've only got 20 minutes or 25 minutes to preach in this subject that really we could deal with in 10 or 12 sermons. So what is public worship? This is the morning worship service in Carryduff. What is public worship? Let me ask this question. Does it matter when we worship? Does it matter where we worship? Does it matter what we worship? Does it matter the way we worship? Our radio broadcast for the Free Presbyterian Church is Let the Bible Speak. And that's what I want to do this morning. And I want to present to you in the next 20 or 25 minutes an understanding of the principles of true biblical worship. And then once you get the hold of the principles in your head, you can decide... According to the guiding light of the scriptures, 
which is the right way to worship. Now, four things. I want you to think of the essence of true biblical worship. Look at Psalm 95, verse 6. Here's an exhortation. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So we've got this exhortation, oh, come, let us worship. We'll pause there. What is worship? I want to clarify what true worship is. I want to think of the meaning of the English word worship. The word is used 188 times in the authorized version. Young people, worship is really from a, an Anglo-Saxon word. And if we go back in time, we'll discover that the word worship come from two English words, worth and ship. Worth-ship. These two old English words come together. And I want you to think of the subject of worthiness. I want you to think of being worthy. The concept and the idea is that the person or the object before you is being praised, being honored, being adored because of that person's intrinsic worth and intrinsic value. And the idea is of ascribing intrinsic value to that person being honored because of his or her worth. Now, that word worship or worthship finds its greatest meaning when it's used in relation to the Lord. 188 times the word worship is used in reference to God as the living and the true God. Oh, come, let us worship. We'll ask the question for the young people, well, who is worthy of receiving adoration, praise, and honor more than anyone else in the whole world? And the answer would have to be the Lord himself. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones asked this very searching question, what is the most important what is the highest activity in which a company of people who come together could be engaged in? And here's the answer that he gave. The honor and the adoring of God in acceptable worship. In other words, offering to God the worship that is his due. And you see, Worship, young people, is not an option. It's not something you can take or leave. Worship is obligatory. This exhortation, O come, let us worship, is actually in the form of a command. There is a call from God to all the redeemed of the earth to come before him to worship him in a way and a manner that's glorifying to his name, that's reverential and honoring to him. Worshiping the Lord for who he is. Taking into our hearts and minds, using our reason and understanding and our thought process to think of who he is and to what he is like and to what he has done. Do you know this morning... That the offering of worship to God is a mark of grace. Turn over there to John chapter 4. 
John chapter 4. The Lord Jesus is speaking to the woman of Samaria at Jacob's well in Sychar. And if we read in John 4 verse 19, we read, The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. When the Lord Jesus asked this woman, young people, for a drink at the well, this woman was amazed at that request. Why? Because the Jews had no dealing with the Samaritans. You see, the Samaritans as a people, they had been formed some 700 years earlier. And um, they had been part of the split of the 10 tribes from the 12 tribes uh, into the northern kingdom. And they had allowed themselves to intermingle and marry with the heathen uh, who lived in Canaan at that time and other surrounding countries. They founded their own system of worship. They made their own gods, two calves, uh, one in Bethel and one in Dan. And, uh, of course, they formed their own priesthood and introduced their own sacrifice and their own temple at a place called Shechem. And you can read all about that there in Second Kings chapter 17. Now, they had no command from God to do so. They, they had a form of worship that they decided and devised by themselves. Now, here's 700 years later, and this woman's a member of this Samaritan community. And the Lord Jesus engages the woman in conversation and he talks to her and he asks her for a drink. And then he starts talking to her about the water of life and about living water. And the woman's amazed. And she said, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And uh, immediately she wanted to ask the question about worship. And isn't that what she said? Um, verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, would you neither at this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father? Now, now think of that. He then went on to say in verse 24 or 23, For the Father seeketh such to worship him. You see that word seeketh? It, it's in the active, present, continuous sense. In other words, it's the Father that done the seeking. And I believe that God the Father, through God the Son, had sought this woman out herself. And he had created and formed a new heart for the worshiper to worship him. This woman's heart had been dealt with. That this woman's heart was converted and awakening took place in her own heart and life. And through this woman's testimony, an awakening took place in Samaria. But it was the Lord that did the seeking. You see, the Lord is always seeking for true worshipers. Being a true worshiper, worshiping God in spirit and truth, is a mark of grace in the life of a genuine believer. Over there in the book of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3, the apostle Paul wrote this, For we are the circumcision 
which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. In other words, there's three hallmarks of the one who's born again and has a new heart. The circumcision of God. We worship God in the spirit. That's the first thing. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. That's the second thing. And have no confidence in the flesh. And that desire that created within. And that determination in the heart and mind. And that decision to do it. Is all because of the father's seeking. It's the father's making. The father's calling. The father's doing. Turn over there to Revelation. Look with me at chapter 4 and verse 10. We read there, Revelation 4 and verse 10. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Here's a view of heaven. Here's a view of the final state in heaven. 24 elders representing the entire church, Old and New Testament. And what are they occupied doing in heaven? They're falling before him who sat on the throne. They're worshiping him that lives forever and ever. They're saying, thou art worthy. You see, here's the essence of worship. They're taking into their heart and mind the worthiness of God. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 we read And they sung a new song saying Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation Verse 12 Saying with a loud voice Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power And riches and wisdom and strength and honour and blessing It says in verse 14 And the four beasts said Amen And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. You see, it's vital that you understand what true worship is. The question is this who deserves true worship? Who alone has intrinsic value? Who alone is great and magnificent? And there's only one answer, young people the living and the true God. And that's what we do in the Lord's day. We, we come on this day in the morning service to have a morning worship and our worship is of the living and the true God. In other words, we have one object in view in coming to come before the Lord with the intention of exalting and magnifying and praising and honoring the Lord. How? By humbling ourselves before him in reverence and in godly fear, by, by bowing our heads before him, by I, I, um, doing it in a spirit of humility and a spirit of godly fear and, and humble adoration. You see, many have a poor view of worship because they have a poor view of God. They have a lack of the knowledge of God and that impacts upon their view of worship. So understand this morning the essence of worship. Now, I have to move on quickly, so bear with me. Think of the essentials in true biblical What's the essentials in true biblical worship? As you come to worship him, you worship the Lord exclusively. You, you do so with an understanding of who and what the Lord is. If we go back to Psalm 95, it says, 95 verse 1, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. 
Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before his presence with thanksgiving. You see, true worship must be directed to God alone. There is a false worship. Worship offered to an idol. Worship that can be offered to any other God that's not God, as the living and the true God is. That's unacceptable. God rejects it. God views it as wrong. Think of the false religions of the world. Buddha, Islam. We could think of many others. You see, it's not a matter of preference. It's a matter of the precepts. It's not a matter of taste. It's a matter of the truth. It's not a matter of style. It's a matter of the scriptures. Worship must please the Lord. Over there in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 20, and what do we read there in verses 1 and 2? You've got the preface here to the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, listen to the word of God. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And you see, in today's world, is the Lord not forgotten? Is the Lord not being forsaken by those who are atheist and those who are agnostic? Is the living and true God not despised and rejected by many? Do, do the multitude not reject the very idea that there is a God who requires us to worship him exclusively? They, they argue, but it's individual choice. You can do it if you want, but it's not an individual choice. It's a command. It's not an option. It's an obligation. It's not something you can decide by preference. Because it's already decided by precept. We're to worship the Lord exclusively. Oh, that we could grasp that. Turn over there to Revelation chapter 19 verse 10. Revelation 19 verse 10. Here's the apostle John. He's in the Isle of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And this is what we read there. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, listen to these words. And I fell at his feet to worship him. That's the angel. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren, which have the testimony of Jesus. Notice these words now. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now keep that in mind and over there in the book of Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13 we read these words Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shall swear by his name the word fear here means being in reverential awe it means being in dread of him and in the Hebrew word it is wide enough connotation to include the whole concept of having the worship of God before your mind. And if you think of those words, Deuteronomy 6 and 13, and then come to the New Testament, come to um, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10, listen to these words. Here's the Lord Jesus. He's been 40 days in the wilderness. He's been tempted of the devil. And this is, uh, the, the devil has come to tempt him again. Uh, and it says in Matthew 4 and verse 10, get thee hence, then said Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, 
For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And that's a direct quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. It's also a, a, a quotation from um, uh, Deuteronomy um, uh, chapter 10, I believe, in verse 23. The word fear means being in reverential of him, ascribing worth to him. God is to be feared. You, you've got to think of how great God is, and the psalmist mentions that. Here's the reason for praise. The fear of God. How great he is. Think of his person. Think of his power. Think of his perfection. Think of his purpose. How good he is. How gracious he is. Think of this angel that comes to John and Patmos. The one who brought the message to him. And what did he tell them to do? He told them to worship God. We're not to worship someone else. There's only one true and living God. The God of heaven and earth. Our creator and maker. The psalmist said, the Lord God omnipoteth reigneth. In Psalm 34 and verse 3, he says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. The word magnify makes, make him great. It doesn't change the Lord's size. It doesn't change the Lord's status. If you think of magnification, it doesn't change the size of an object or the status of an object. It brings it closer. It, it, you can see clearer. It's still the same size and still the same shape. And that's what the psalmist means. Magnify the Lord. Elevate him in your heart and mind. Lift him up. Bring him closer. See him clearer. And as we worship him properly, in spirit and in truth, he is lifted up and brought closer and clearer so we can see his beauty, see his magnificence, see his perfection. We don't worship angels. And we don't worship saints. And we don't worship Mary like the cult of Roman Catholicism. We certainly don't worship the Pope or its priests. We don't worship the king. We don't bow down before men and do a bends to them. Why? Because we worship God exclusively. Let me tell you something else. We need to worship the Lord mediatorially. The hymn writer says, never lose sight of Jesus. And it's important that we have Jesus in our focus when it comes to worship. Because the book says, for there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And it's interesting when the Lord Jesus addressed the woman at the well. She talked about worship, this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And you say Jerusalem's the place to be worshipped. She had her eyes in a fixed place. And the Jesus said to her, look, don't get your eyes in a place. Because the hour cometh. And in fact, that hour now is when you shall neither worship on that mountain or in Jerusalem for, for the Father. And he said, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You know those words there in verse 23, the hour cometh. It's a reference to Christ. Remember, he used it negatively. He said, mine hour has not yet come, John 2. But he used it positively. John 12 and 23. And it was the hour of his death. It was the hour of his resurrection. He was speaking about his death and suffering and the shedding of his blood followed by resurrection victory. And you see, every true worshiper in spirit and truth draws near to God in the merits of the blood of the Lamb. There's no temple at Jerusalem. Christ is that temple. He, he fulfilled the tabernacle in the temple. And in Christ, we worship God. And you can't worship God apart from Christ because he's the mediator of the new covenant. People tell us you can't worship God without ritual. 
I want to tell you, you can't worship God without the Redeemer. We can only worship God acceptably on the value and the merits of Christ's person at work. We have to worship the Lord scripturally. We worship the Lord in the trinity of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, true worship must be Trinitarian. And I know the doctrine of the Trinity is denied and rejected by many, and I think of oneness churches here in Northern Ireland. But the Bible teaches us that this one living and true God has manifested himself, not in three different ways, but in three different persons. There are three persons in the one Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, that, and without that, worship is impossible. See, true worship requires God as Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I make no apology for being Trinitarian in our public and in our private worship. And the doctrine of the Trinity is integral to public worship. And we need to rediscover the doctrine of the Trinity. We get glimpses of it. Genesis 1 and 1, in the beginning, God, the word God is plural. Genesis 1, 26, let us make man in our image. Matthew 3, 17, when the Lord Jesus was baptized. What does the Bible teach us? God the Father spoke from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I will please. Where was the Son? He was standing in the river Jordan. And the Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove. There you've got the three persons of the Trinity. Let me tell you something else very quickly. Bear with me. Worship the Lord humbly. Here's another essential. Notice if you go back to our text, it says, Oh, come and let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. In other words, our heart must be in it. Do I love the Lord enough to worship him with a desire? To worship him with a dis discipline? To worship him with a decision? I got a little Facebook post this morning about the Christians in Afghanistan at 11 o'clock last night who were meeting for worship because they're eight and a half hours in front of us. A man from, uh, by the name of David um, Kibber, Kibler. The, the Taliban was in the streets. The Taliban was watching them. And out of, I'm sure, fear, they went ahead to practice their worship on the Lord's Day at 11 p.m. last night, their time. Why? Because worship's a matter of the heart. And if the heart is right before him and the heart is set in him. You see, you remember he said, this people draw near me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. Matthew 15. How do you worship the Lord? With your heart in it. Because God has quickened and renewed and regenerated that heart and your heart has been stirred and kept and, and you humbly come and present yourself to him. Those are the essentials. Let me just give you quickly the elements of true biblical worship. When the Lord's people come together, uh, the psalmist said here, let us worship. You've got to think of a body of God's people locally meeting for worship. And what's involved? Praise. There's the first exhortation. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Oh, come, let us make a joyful noise unto God. Psalm 95, 1 and 2. Why? For the Lord is great. And you see, the psalmist is taking into his mind God's person, God's power, God's possessions, God's purpose. He says in verse 7, for he is our God. 
praise. Prayer, think of the words with thanksgiving. He, he, he says, O come and let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before our maker. There's a presentation. The presentation's not of silver, it's first of ourselves. It's, it's of our souls. So we're bowing down before him and kneeling before him in sincerity and, position, and submission. And then there's preaching. Today, if you will hear his voice, his voice. See, the pulpit's central. We believe in the preaching of the word. John Calvin said that the pulpit must be central in public worship, not in a corner. Why? Because preaching of the word is central. People say, but I don't go to listen to the preacher. I go to worship. That sounds very superior. Sounds very spiritual. But I want to tell you it's wrong. Listen to me carefully as I finish. Worshiping God in the preaching of the word. Because the preaching of the word in the act of preaching is the means that God has of speaking to us. Preaching is a central act of all true worship. The exposition of the scriptures. The explanation of the word. So people can come to know this God. So they can respond and bow down before him in sincerity and submission. Isn't that what happened in Nehemiah? Nehemiah chapter 8 verses 7 to 9. Read it. The priests and the scribes gave them understanding of the book in order to present themselves to worship God. So here's the elements. That's why we have it in our church praise and prayer and presentation and preaching. Those are the four key things in true worship. Think of the engagement in worship and our time is gone. If you go back to John 4 and verse 24, he tells us there, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Energized by the Holy Spirit. In light of the truth of the scriptures, the two come together in the assembly of the saints. And then there's this activity of engagement as a true worshiper in approaching the Father through Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. How do we worship him? It has to be in spirit. It has to be in truth. And I present to you, present it now, these four principles. The essence, what it is. The essential, and they're, they're, they're a must. Exclusively, he must be worshipped. Mediatorially, he must be worshipped. Scripturally, to the law and to the testament, they speak not according to this word, it's because there's light in them. Must be worshipped according to the scriptures. The truth must be there. And he must worship humbly. There has to be sincere submission to him. We're bowing down to him. The Lord is God. He's our God. And I've accepted him as my God through Christ. And then these elements come to the fore. Praising him. Prayer. Presentation. But also preaching. My ears open. Speak, Lord. And then this engagement. It's in the spirit. Through the truth. That we approach them. May the Lord take these few thoughts and bless them to our hearts at this time.